Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. Once again, we have the pleasure of being joined by line editor for Call of Cthulhu, Mr. Mike Mason. How are you doing, Mike? Hello, hello. It's it's me again. I hear you're talking about horror films, so I wanted to uh, join you. Have you seen any? I've seen I've seen one, but I think Good. I know I think I know enough now. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, not just horror films, but today we're going to be talking about disgust and body horror and how you can use these things in your games. Before we get into all that good stuff, however, what is going on? It's come well, it's coming round to that time again, folks. Blasphemous Tome 5.5 is on the horizon. Yeah, it doesn't seem like that long since we put out issue five, but it wasn't. That's the- why. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I guess if you put it like that. <laughs> for those who might not have heard us refer to the point five issues before, this is something we tried out last year, where we put out an electronic tome uh, mid-year. So this will probably come out uh, probably July, start of July. And this will contain the stuff that we couldn't fit into the print edition of issue five, plus some all new material, including a new scenario I'm working on. And yes, other good stuff. And that'll be uh, going out to all our Patreon backers in the summer. And while we've got you on the line, Mike, what else is new from Chaosium? We've got just about ready to come out, if not already out by the time you hear this, a new book called mansions of madness volume one which basically is a well a new edition of the old mansions of madness book but the contents are slightly different it has uh, two updated and uh, redeveloped scenarios from the original mansions of madness which are mr corbett the classic mr corbett Ah. scenario and uh, cracked and crooked manse uh, by mark morrison mr corbett was done by sean dewolf and we have three brand new scenarios uh, within this tome as well. So we have uh, The Code by uh, Mr. Christopher Lackey of the uh, HP Podcraft uh, podcast. We also have by uh, Stuart Boone, who uh, was the author of Shadows Over Scotland, if you may remember that from a few years back. And last but not least, um, there is a scenario called The House of Memphis, and uh, that's written by Gavin Inglis, who is the author of Alone Against the Flames. And uh, ah. that one, uh, I, I don't know, I've got a particular soft spot for. It's about battling stage magicians in the 1920s. Um, whereas uh, the other one, uh, The Code, all I'm going to tell you is, I was actually at a, a convention with uh, Chris Lackey when he ran one of the first playtests for that scenario. And whilst I didn't play in the game, I did... I was literally waiting outside the room when the players came out when they finished it, and and their reactions were amazing. They they were all walking out, scratching their heads, looking flabbergasted, and going, "What just happened?" So I just thought, <laughs> "Well, that sounds like a brilliant scenario." So that's got to be in the book. And you said this is volume one of Mansions of Madness, so I I assume that there are more volumes coming. Uh, yeah, many Call of Cthulhu scenarios are set in a. A building, a house, mansion, or kind of... So it seems like a, a bit of a shame to just restrict it to one book when there's plenty of ideas. And indeed, you know, there are you know there are some of the older scenarios from the original Mansions of Madness that, you know, we still like to uh, to put out again. So we thought it would be kind of cool to kind of mix it up and have some old and some new in each volume. 
So uh, we'll certainly uh, be looking at doing a volume two in due course. We've also, Lynn is currently um, putting literally the finishing touches to the Children of Fear campaign. That's the uh-huh. uh, the campaign set across China, India, and Tibet, which uh, you and I, Scott, played the uh, the playtest of with Lynn. Yes, yes, that, <laughs> that was marvellous fun. The detail that she managed to work in with uh, the spiritual beliefs and the history and the the geography i that 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 is a stunning piece of research absolutely and there's not many there's not many call of Cthulhu books where we've actually had um two uh you know practicing to uh, buddhist priests review the manuscript just to check <laughs> you know it's authentically correct lynn has managed to sort of marshal a, a range of fantastic artwork that really kind of plays to the uh the setting and and uh, and the various kind of different cultures within the, the, the you know kind of explored within the campaign, uh, so it's gonna should look fabulous as well. So we're just um, mm-hmm. we're just literally finishing off the text in terms of you know uh, proofing and uh, just making sure there's nothing left in there that needs correcting, and uh, that'll head off into into layout fairly soon. So that should be out very soon. And um, nice. I guess one more thing to mention is. We have a, um, a series of short one-on-one scenarios. So that's one keeper and one player that were originally actually uh, written by some Polish authors for our, our uh, licensee Black Monk in Poland. They're actually all kind of loosely based around the theme of love, which is slightly unusual for Call of Cthulhu. However, mm, um, yeah. they, were, they were released originally on Valentine's Day in Poland. Uh, and obviously they, they, they are kind of horror scenarios as well. They're not just all about love so um we've got uh, those one-on-ones which we're currently kind of redeveloping and uh, getting into shape for uh for our publication and uh we're hoping to get those out certainly in a in a pdf format fairly quickly because it's a you know with this lockdown it is a great time for if you've you know just two of you in a house you can run a game or you know just one-on-one online it's a very handy format for that kind of thing putting the love back into lovecraft that that's what it's all about And now on to our main topic, disgust and body horror. Well, way back in episode 160, when we were talking about how to keep Call of Cthulhu scary, we went into different types of fear and we were going to cover disgust there as well, but we ran short of time. So we thought we'd break that out into a separate discussion. And we've also been talking for some time about doing an episode about body horror, and the two of them seem to be so closely intertwined, you know, with wet, moist tendrils just you know, digging into each other, mm. that we, you know, that, that we thought it might as well just be a single episode covering the two. So, uh... How do you define disgust and how do we bring it into games? I did a bit of reading about the psychology of disgust ahead of doing this. And there is an American psychologist called Paul Ekman, who has basically done a study trying to identify what the common human emotions are across all cultures globally. One of the distinct emotions that he picked up that is present in every culture is disgust. And it's not just that it's present, but it's it seems to evoke the same basic reactions in people regardless of culture. They record in the same ways, they evidence the same facial expressions and stuff like that. So it seems to be something very deeply rooted in the human psyche. And something at the same time that I think is perhaps quite different from fear, but at the same time is very 
central to horror. But doesn't it produce kind of the same effect? Where, you know, fear is something to warn you that something bad could happen. So you retract, perhaps, or, mm. or prepare to guard yourself in some way. Revulsion, while it doesn't kind of have those necessarily those same end results, it, it is a, isn't it a kind of like a fear reaction? You know, you, you, you're not going to, mm. you know, you are going to withdraw mentally or physically from, from something that revolts you to some degree. I mean, it's not quite the same kind of fear reaction, is it? it, it but there's there's a commonality, but not quite the same. It seems to me it's a bit like a survival instinct that we're sensing yeah. something is very, very wrong. It's very rotten. It's very putrid. It's going to be unhealthy. It's unnatural in some way. There's something wrong with it, and we shouldn't be... Our primitive brain is saying we shouldn't be having anything to do with this. We need to get out of here right now because it's, it's a threat to me. Yeah, mostly seems to tie in with fear of disease and contamination. Mm. That, yeah, it is rotten food, it's bad smells, it's vomit and shit, it's uh, parasitic insects. But also, I mean, it can also tie in with things like um, what, what's referred to delightfully as violations of the bodily envelope. So, yeah, things like just having your skin cut open, stuff like that. There is obviously the fear or the anticipation of the pain. But if you see a wound on yourself, there's also, you know, quite often a disgust reaction there as well. And I think, you know, this is something that we'll, we'll get into a bit more as well when we start talking about body horror. It's interesting, though, because it is a malleable thing. Although, you know, I, I agree that, you know, it's a common thing across, you know, cultures. But to borrow a phrase I've heard before is, you know, someone's yuck is somebody else's yum. <laughs> and uh, yeah. And so that's quite interesting because I think, you know, it was for many, there's a common revulsion for, for some, just like as in many things in life, some people do react differently or, or get a different sense of things. Mm. Well, I think what probably varies quite a lot across cultures is not the reaction but the trigger that there are certain universal things that will get to people regardless of culture but for example with foodstuffs um yeah there are certain foodstuffs that we eat you know, regularly without perhaps thinking about it twice or most of us do like cheese which for uh, people from cultures that haven't grown up with cheese yeah, so you know, for example, I think this is fairly common in Japan. Cheese is seen as being quite disgusting. People aren't necessarily used to these the smell or the flavour or the texture of it. Fundamentally, it is made from rotten milk, and we've become so inured to it. Similarly, in Japan, you know, you might get a dish like natto, which is made from fermented soybeans, which is if you're again if you're not used to it, is really quite repellent. But again, if you've grown up with it. Yeah, is is just normal. Yeah, okay. We're perhaps threatening to get into other territories here, but you know, fermented foods and so on are different foods that have gone off. Well, yes, but I think they trigger similar kinds of reactions. I mean, it's obviously mm. a more controlled form of it, but it is fundamentally transforming it through the action of bacteria or microorganisms in a way that is at least similar to food that has gone off or is rancid. I mean, I think that's a, an interesting thing here that we can bring into games, and that's one I tend to go by my sense of smell isn't that great, I don't think. But when I'm judging foods and, you know, like I make cider, mm. I judge if it's okay with my nose. I can tell if it's gone off in the in the fermentation. The same with many other foods and so on. The first thing to do is to look at it and then smell it. 
and you can tell usually if something's bad because he's got that i can't really yeah communicate it verbally but it's got that just bad smell you, you just kind of know by the smell it's it's wrong it's gone off it's rancid whatever and that's something that i think you know just jumping into games we can bring into games because we don't we can we, we often communicate mm. how things look but i think smell and the other senses but particularly smell is something very primitive and very primal uh, in that if we enter a room and there's a weird smell that can often be like the most disturbing thing i think yeah absolutely by a foulness you yell, you shall know them isn't it the line and that foulness you know mm. i always take it it's not just you know physically foul but they smell bad and the whole pervading kind of atmosphere they give off is 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 foul yeah i had a pet tortoise when i was a kid and it died about i don't know yeah, about eight or ten years ago. So it lived a long time. And it was in my parents' sitting room. And mum was like, I think the tortoise has died because <laughs> it's been sat there. Because sometimes it's a tortoise, right? So sometimes it sits there for quite a long time without moving. And I'm like, so I pick it up and uh, it's kind of cold, but then, you know, that can be like that. But this <laughs> kind of black liquid came out of it. And the smell was just like, this is, yeah, that, that smell. I didn't get it on me. But that smell just got in my head and I just couldn't just, you know, that, that smell just stayed with me for days. Not not physically, but just mentally. It was just repellent. It was horrible. And, yeah, I think if you're thinking about this in terms of games, it is not just the smell. I mean, it's all the senses. I think if you're trying to evoke feelings of disgust, that fear of contamination, that fear of decay and putrescence, then touch is a very powerful one as well. I mean, describing things as being sticky or tacky or you know, viscous, along with that bad smell, is, I, I think, a good way of, of stirring up that disgust well it's that kind of change of state isn't it the norm a state of solidity let's say when you touch someone's flesh that it gives slightly but it, it doesn't come away in kind of semi kind of liquid stickiness <laughs> when that happens it's wrong it isn't natural so presenting something that isn't the natural norm automatically kind of makes it icky disgusting revolt you know whatever it may be changing the kind of normality of the sense whether it's touch smell or whatever can produce that effect if you're thinking of this in terms of lovecraft in horror and call of cthulhu there are plenty of ways of bringing that discomfort in that don't necessarily rely on directly on uh, say decay and putrescence but just the similarities so if you think about the way lovecraft described deep bonds for example that a lot of what makes them repellent is the fact that they smell of rotten fish, that their skin is perhaps tacking slimy. And there's nothing perhaps unnatural about that. There's nothing inherently diseased. But at the same time, it's got all those signifiers for us that speak of the danger of contamination, that we are inherently revolted. What about you, Matt? Where do you go to with disgust? What, what disgusts you or what do you bring into games that's uses that uh, very little to be honest i think of the kind of sliding scale of disgust and body horror i definitely do body horror occasionally but in terms of disgust yeah not not that much hmm. i just keep thinking of my experience going down the fruit and veg aisle at the supermarket and that pretty much is the, <laughs> the atypical feeling for me when it comes to disgust <laughs> but yeah no it's not something i really play around with that much 
Mm, interesting. Oh, it's pretty much the first tool I reach for in my toolbox. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, perhaps appropriately, the use of disgust in horror in general, not just in gaming, but in films and in fiction, is something that provokes a very strong reaction. And I think I, I've certainly seen horror writers and critics, particularly from days gone by, talking about you know, the use of of gore and putrescence and and you know disgusting elements as being somehow base and beneath the aspirations of the good horror writer. Personally, I think that it's a perfectly fine thing to use in games and that it's a very but perhaps it is a, an easier way of, of provoking a reaction than trying to scare people. But as I said before, I think, you know, trying to scare people in horror games is a very, very difficult thing and is usually doomed to failure. On the other hand, if you want a genuine visceral reaction out of someone, disgusting them is usually fairly easy. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll try not to keep saying it, but, you know, by a foulness you shall know them. Uh, so when I'm describing, you know, not every, I mean, the thing is, again, like anything, if you overdo this, it, it's pointless. But if you can, you know, if there's a particularly kind of alien or unnatural in the human experience kind of thing you're trying to, you know, creature or experience you're trying to convey, the effects of disgust or revulsion are quite good to kind of use to describe to kind of encourage the players in terms of how their characters are feeling. So, you know, that kind of sense of something rising in the pit of your stomach, the nausea rising when they see something that's not within their human experience, it's fundamentally against that experience. And I think those drawing on that kind of nausea, that kind of feeling of, of, of ickiness that uh, I think you're right, Scott, you can, you can use that to kind of exemplify what, the investigators might be feeling uh, and then you can gauge that and scale it up or down depending on how they respond you know when they make a sanity roll perhaps if they really make a bad one perhaps they do throw up but you know or, or whatever it may be or you know or they, they only lose a point and they kind of contain it and hold it in and they take a breath and they move on yeah i think when you're talking about a dark young there for example then sort of talking to the players in an abstract about how it's an affront against the investigator's experiences and conception of reality is is okay in the abstract but if you want to really bring it home to the players you start throwing in incidental details like the viscous black liquid that's bubbling out of the mouths the, the, the wet popping noises as it bubbles and uh, the, the, the stench of decay that's coming off that like rotten fruit and I think those are going to really hammer it home and actually anchor it for the players no i agree i, I agree i just think you, mm. you you should try to not overdo it because if every you know every deep one gold mm. dark young you know is that they soon lose oh, yeah. that effect so it's just use it wisely and there's another aspect of disgust as well which ties in with all this uh, but is this idea of moral disgust which is a bit more fluid in terms of the cultural aspects of it, but it seems to provoke the same visceral reactions. There are certain moral behaviours in people that will fire off the same disgust centres in the brain as, as seeing something rotten. And so things like in very conservative societies, you know, people of different sexualities might do that. Or on the other hand, in other, you know, more 
secular societies that perhaps things like political corruption or abuse of power will fire off those same disgust centers or you know predatory sexual behavior i don't know that that aspect of kind of moral disgust i think is something that could be very much there within the mythos because we hear lovecraft talking over and over again about how these things are blasphemous that that they seem to be repellent abhorrent to to moral norms that regardless of what you actually believe and that to me you know speaks to some kind of moral disgust if we talk about cultists in this context then the effect the mythos has on those to turn them from the norms of society to turn them into murderers criminals in a very sort of wide sense and so they they throw away what they might term as the shackles of morality to be free of that the old ones will come and teach humanity to be like the old ones free of restraint and morals i you know mm. I, I see that as a kind of the, you know that is the catch term for what happens to cultists in different ways and degrees and so that kind of loss of morals and so that so they are capable of doing actions or or enacting these you know horrible kind of schemes which would disgust everyone else or do disgust everyone else and certainly you know the the game kind of plays on the sense that you know the investigators would hopefully be disgusted and not want these things to happen or, or prevent them um mm. as a you know as a driving factor in that regard so i think it's the disgust is 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 the effect on humanity in a sense that kind of corruption that kind of you know moral decay as well as physical decay and mental decay in that sense from the touch of the the mythos changing and warping a good is a good sort of sense for that it changes the moral compass of, of a cultist perhaps okay now i'm sure scott is going to have enough anecdotes here to fill the rest of an episode <laughs> with but go on what have you done that would be considered the most disgusting thing in a game or what is the most disgusting thing you've seen in a game that you've been in hmm. I'll let someone else go first because I've been talking a lot here. Paul, do you want to try weighing in here? I find it difficult to think of specific examples of something, you know, that really stands out as being disgusting. Disgusting, it's usually an incidental thing that goes along with the description of something, of a monster or an effect that it has or of a body that they find. When I incorporate those things, if I really want to get that sense of disgust, I, I guess the same as with fear, I try and sort of think of things that have disgusted me, mm. um, perhaps things that I've witnessed. And I mean, the other, you know, I guess the stereotype one that, that often disgusts people is that um, that old uh, standby of having like something that's laid eggs in somebody because that, that idea of something growing mm. within your body that is alien to you, whether it is literally alien or whether it's terrestrial, you know, there are creatures, parasites and so on that, that live in the body. And um, for very good reason, we tend to have a, a repulsion towards the effects of those. So that's always a good standby, I think. You see, I, I would have plugged that more in the body horror camp. Well, I think yeah, body horror is a subcategory almost of disgust, or at least a, mm. a form of disgust. So I think there's going to be some crossover there. But yeah, I think things like parasitism certainly you know, ties in with this. It's certainly something I keep going back to, and I, I do wonder sometimes whether this is just because I come from the tropics originally, and the fear of what some of the local wildlife... Yeah, I mean, Hong Kong is subtropics. I mean, it's not like places in the world which are absolutely filled with creepy crawlies and horrible parasites, but there are more than there are in the UK. 
This idea that things might crawl into you or, or bite you with poisonous bites and, um, you know, you might find, you know, something nasty in your shoe or, I just remember this. Uh, story that my mother told me of a, a friend of hers who'd gone to do the washing up one day and had put on her rubber gloves and not realised that there was a tropical centipede in, in one of the gloves until she put it on. That, to me, was the essence of horror, that you put your hand in there and there's this absolutely disgusting, venomous creature, this you know, really hostile creature that's just in there that you don't know about until it's too late. And things like that freak me out. And it is partly fear, and it's certainly very much disgust. And when I try to express these things in scenarios, that's always, I think, what I'm going back to. I mean, that seems like a rational fear to me mm. of a thing that, that is perfectly healthy and natural. I mean, I can see how you can twist that around and say it's disgust, but it doesn't. That's not the quintessential emotion that I sort of think of. The the effect is perhaps disgust. I mean, it's like I think about. Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, mm. you know, when they open the door in the ceiling to the Well of Souls and they look down and uh, I can't remember the character's name, um, Safa, is it? Says uh, Salah. Salah uh, says, uh, Indy, why does the floor move? And it's, well, it's because <laughs> it's completely covered in snakes. And I like that kind of sense of things, you know, that kind of like, you know, something doesn't seem right, but I don't know until I look further or touch it. And I then realise how wrong it is. It is that kind of yeah. that kind of sense that I like to try and put in games sometimes when I, when you know when it all comes together in that way. The easy answer in any game is that well, when you know we've all used this to some degree when we've described you know meeting a monster or seeing some alien god or whatever. That's the common most commonest time you're going to kind of invoke that kind of disgust. I think in a game. However, I think you know if you can find those little moments. And I think they are just little moments, and and they tend to be kind of personal to one player, perhaps because you just you manage to just touch the button with that player, you know, somebody who um, is maybe got a you know in life a phobia of slugs or something like that, and you you know that you get them to put the glove on with the slug inside, and they pull it out with the slug on the finger, <laughs> they're gonna naturally feel a bit of revulsion and disgust because you're playing on the players fears even though their investigator's probably some tough and two-fisted kind of guy but they're going to feel it as a player you can get away with that sometimes if you don't go too far and the players are all up for that kind of stuff well i think even when you go for too far i think probably the most effective disgusting thing i've put into a game and this is a published scenario so i won't go into too much detail there's a scenario i wrote where at some point to try to rescue someone who is dear to the investigators they basically have to wade through in the dark this great pool of effluent this you know, is a mixture of bile and shit and there are things moving around in it live things so you know it's just this description of them basically up to their necks wading through this you know describing the smell this you know it's all warm and and viscous and yeah every now and then they can feel things slithering across their body they can't see under the surface and i don't think i've i've ever had a game where i've described that to people and they haven't just been wriggling in their seats well it's similar to that again i won't n name the scenario or campaign that it's from but i think we all know which one where you know you you look into the chamber and the and you go to the pool <laughs> this dark pool of water that's rippling and until you kind of get in it or whatever, you don't you realise it's actually just completely packed with leeches. I, which yes. reminds me of a fantastic true story. The, the, we, we're talking about parasites and how we have a revulsion to them because they're not, you know, generally a, 
a nice or healthy thing that we want to encourage. <laughs> this, is, this is genuinely a true story. I think it was in Asia. A person went into the store and the person was serving them behind the counter. And then they, the, this is from the point of view of the person behind the counter. The customers just started to like scream at their face and, and was backing off. And the person, I don't know what's going on. What, what have I done? You know, what have I done? And it wasn't until a few moments later, they realized they had a leech in their nostril that had oh, anesthetized. So they had no idea it was yeah. there because they couldn't feel it. But it, literally while they were serving, the leech just took its head out and was poking around outside their nose. <laughs> and, you know, you know, that would be pretty horrific if you were stood in facing that, mm. I think, you know. Oh, I mean, leeches are horrible for that because, like you say, they anesthetize you. I got bitten by a leech in Sri Lanka years ago. And... I didn't realize what had happened until, well, it's a combination of the fact they anesthetize and they pump you full of anticoagulants. So, you know, eventually this leech dropped off and there was just blood pouring down my leg and I had no idea why. Thinking of real world disgust then, I've definitely got one example I can think of, which uh, I think I'd heard it originally um, as an anecdote from Alice Cooper on his uh, late night Planet Rock show. And then decided, no, this can't be real and did some D online and found news articles, plural, examining this was at the back end of last year there was a case where i think it was in china where man had brought a like a broth from a street vendor i believe it was uh, that had lumps of pork in it mm-hmm. except the the theory goes that apparently one of those lumps of pork wasn't cooked properly and consequently he started experiencing massive headaches and generally feeling very very ill and when they went in for a scan, it found that his brain was riddled with small tapeworms. Mm. And he died very shortly afterwards. But yeah, the idea of just having all these things crawling around, especially in your head, that, yeah. oh, God. Well, tapeworms are terrible for that because, you know, you tend to think of them as anchoring themselves in your stomach. But like you said, I mean, they can get loose and they can infest anywhere in the body, the muscle mass, other organs, and yeah, they can get into the head. What about this body horror stuff then? Indeed. I would venture a guess that, Scott, you're a bit of a fan of body horror. I'm just guessing. <laughs> I, I might be. I might be. Yeah. So why why, why that? Because I would say that's probably your favourite out of all kinds of horror because, you know, mm. you employ it so much. Why is that your favourite? Body horror, I think, speaks to something absolutely primal in us that... Yes, I mean, it's rooted very much in disgust, but I think it's also an existential terror as well. It straddles the two perfectly because it's it, it's an assault on our bodily autonomy and our sense of of self, but it's it's an assault on the idea of what it basically means to be human. It ties in with our fear of aging, of death, of disease, of parasites, and of just simply losing our sense of self. And I think these are such huge, big themes in, not just in horror, but just in understanding what it means to be human in general, that I just find myself drawn back to them over and over again whenever I'm trying to think of things that personally frighten or upset me. What about you, Matt? Are you 
do you like body horror films? Do you, you said you haven't really used a lot of kind of disgust in your games in the same way as maybe Scott or I or, or Paul, but what about where 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 do you fall on this kind of thing? It's probably my least favourite tool to draw upon. Scott's probably going to hate me for saying this, but yeah, I'm, I fall into that camp of finding that it's a very cheap device to use. I prefer the more called the fear-driven angle of horror or the unknown and the supernatural uh, to generate terror, um, like your good old ghost story would do, rather than sitting back and watching a Cronenberg flick. Is that a personal thing, Matt? Is that because those kind of fears, the kind of supernatural fear, have more... I don't know. I want. I, I was going to say credibility. I don't mean credibility. I mean just more credence for you personally than the fear of kind of the, the things of body horror. Is that, or is that just more of an interest thing for you? I suppose it's more of an interest. It's just I find it's kind of why I turn away from the likes of slasher films. It's yay, some guy's turning up with a knife and he's cutting someone open just in a slightly different way than I've seen the last fifty thousand times when it's happened. I find there's so much more than you can do with other types of reaction, other types of not mystery, but definitely terror than you can with body horror. There's only so many. I think uh, our good friend Steve Ellis put it a great way when he was describing cult. There's only so many times you can get torn apart by hooks and chains. I mean, I wonder if that's interesting to dig into that a bit more. That is it that you don't experience a very strong reaction to those things, Matt? You know, when you do have those body um, horror films, it's always difficult to gauge one's reaction objectively against somebody else's. But and, and I mean, also your your dislike of combat. Combat is also, I would say, the results of combat are to do with body horror, being wounded, of having bits cut off. It's having an effect on your body, and you don't you're not into combat either. You find that very mm. boring. So I wonder they stem from a similar kind of uh, similar kind of stem. That it's there's only so many times you can do it before you've done it all, seen it all, and don't give a shit about seeing it again. But that doesn't make it different from anything else. I mean, I could say exactly the same about ghost stories. And I, I've seen probably more repetition and lack of imagination in ghost stories than any other form of horror. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Maybe just exposure then. But for me, it's just something I've seen done so many times I just don't have much of an interest in. I might throw it in somewhere as an accent to something. So as a maybe as a curveball that suddenly it's a very jarring change that might provoke a very surprised reaction. But yeah, on the, on the whole, I just don't use it. I think that I can completely get that, Matt. I, the, the scenarios you tend to write, the, the way you run things, you go to the more cerebral end of horror. It's the cerebral end of horror in, in mythos fiction that you tend to, you know, espouse and, and so forth. And so I completely get that. You know, I mean, you know, not everyone's the same and not everyone has the same buttons to press. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's that's what makes it interesting is that you cover it in a different a different perspective and have a different reaction which i think is great you know i think that that's that mm. makes you know that makes why playing with you is going to be a different experience to playing with scott you know you get different yeah. things out of the experience in that way one thing that i find interesting about the whole discussion i mean this isn't talking about what you just said matt but in general terms which is this idea that gore or body horror or disgust is is somehow cheapening horror like i say i've never really bought into that and it's something i've seen espoused a great many times and i have to wonder how much of that is just a defense reaction on the people who are saying it because it's affecting them in ways that they don't like 
that if they see something on screen that genuinely repels them, for some horror fans, that's, that's got to be what they seek out. That's you know, provoking that strong emotional reaction in them. But for other people, it's crossing that line so far that, that it's going to be taboo in a way that, you know, most horror isn't. I think that's correct. I think, you know, because you can just apply the same thing to some people who the depiction within a film of some cruelty or killing an animal is actually pretty minor in the film, but it colours the entire film for them. And so they don't now enjoy that film. They don't want to watch it again or don't want to or stop watching it. And the same effect can apply to people who just find that kind of gore goes over the line for them. I think it's they're similar things. It's just different different reactions in people. But I do think that, I mean, Matt, maybe not so much. And this may be, this may prove my point. I don't know. But I've, I conjecture that we, the three of us, Paul, Scott and I, are kind of children of the 80s, which is the highlight, mm. the high peak of body horror in film. And we were watching, yeah. we were watching the thing. We were watching The Fly. We were watching Reanimator, Razorhead and all. And David Cronenberg's kind of, you know, early films through all, you know, pretty much all body horror. And we were loving yeah. those because we were that that was that was our horror world of our formative years, and so we have this kind of natural kind of well, we we kind of get we get it, we like it, we liked it then it, it revolted us and it, it was kind of fun, and so we kind of have that. Uh, but if you didn't have that, if you came before, then that was seen as a you know as you say by many critics and and, and elder filmmakers as, as kind of baser, you know, more puerile in that way, and subsequently post that. People look back and go, oh, well, it was just silly or, you know, it was revolting or, you know, it wasn't really horror. Um, we, we were right in the middle of it. And I think our perspective is different mm. because of that. I mean, I would say maybe body horror and disgust, they're kind of like the fast food of horror. They're, they're pretty easy to do and to get an effect. But equally, you know, you can do fast food if you make it at home and you do those same things, burgers or fried chicken or whatever. You can make them really well and yeah. you know, really good quality and really fantastic. Or you can just go down to, you know, your fast food joint and, and they just churn it out and people love it. It's whichever one's going to give me the most parasites, Paul. That's what I'm after. That's what it's all about. But you know what I mean? It's like, it's a go-to, the, the disgust and the body horror. That's why there are so many films that use it. That's why it's so easy to use it in scenarios and games because it is a relatively easy thing to latch onto and we all kind of know its its effect. Scaring people in, this, in a role-playing game is almost impossible. I mean, yeah, I think we've all had an experience perhaps doing it once or twice, but it's far from a guaranteed thing. We might be able to every now and then make people slightly uneasy, but but scaring people in a, an RPG the same way as they might get scared at a horror film is almost impossible. Disgusting people in an RPG the same way as they might get disgusted in a horror film, that's doable. Hmm. But, yeah, I mean, we sort of touched upon body horror there. What does body horror mean to each of you? I sort of very quickly encapsulated it. But, Paul, for example, when you think of body horror, what do you actually think of? I think surprises. You meet somebody and, you know, you touch them and they're as cold as a corpse or, you know, they're, they're cold and clammy. Or you touch them and the skin just caves in like moist plaster or something. So it's the human body and very much strictly the human body, uh, mm -hmm. but it's not as it should be. It's not healthy in some way. It's been corrupted, perhaps by natural disease or parasites, because we do have that. We have that revulsion to, to, that, to seeing those things. 
or supernaturally. How about you, Madge? What do you think of when you think of body horror? Mutation, mutilation, and injury. Pretty much those those three sum it up for me. Particularly the mutation part, because I think it's... I always think, when, again, using that term body horror, I keep thinking back to the likes of Videodrome, mm, um, mm. seeing tendrils emerge out of a wrist or out of a gun and burrow their way into flesh, all that warping into becoming something else that's just not human. And how about you, Mike? Um, I think... Um, I think there's a couple of things. And again, I think there's a scale. And I think we're naturally dipping to the, the one end of the scale with the, the mutilation and change and all that kind of gross stuff you'd find in the Gore Score handbook kind of thing. There's a visceral nature to the body horror, clearly. It's something that's gross, but it's also can mean something disturbing. And I'm interested in that end of the scale. And that's where mm. you get into the areas of the uncanny valley. So you're looking at someone and you know they're wrong, but you can't work out why. And it isn't till yeah. you know you realise they're they're not human, but they look human. You know they look like people, and I'm interested in that kind of thing because it's a little more subtle. But I think because of that subtlety, it can actually have a deeper, more impactful effect sometimes. Uh, so that kind of sense of sense of loss of identity in that way, in, in a physical sense, not amongst others. This is where you kind of you know invasion of the body snatchers. Kind of that's the kind of theme here. You know people aren't people anymore and then you can internalize and it's this sense of yourself changing you know you're not you're not in command of yourself anymore or you don't trust yourself you know and that Mm -hmm. uh, um the body politic by clive barker comes into mind in the sense of you know the your body parts have their own agenda now so your hand Mm -hmm. is not you know so that could be ash from evil dead or whatever but you're no longer in control because your body is changing and you don't understand why it's changing and you don't understand. And the horror comes from the realization of what you're changing or what the end result of that change will be. I think that's an interesting dimension of body horror that tends to get overshadowed because of the gore stuff, because the gore stuff is you know, in your face, fun and, and, uh, and exciting in that way, particularly in films. Hmm. So I don't know. Yeah. And I think that's something that is such a universal fear because it's something we all go through to some extent anyway i mean you know i think puberty probably sets a lot of the ideas in our head for for body horror in that you know we are undergoing changes to our bodies that we are not perhaps wholly prepared for and aging is the same thing as you get older your faculties begin to fail in you know quite often unexpected and alarming ways illness you know we've we've all had the experience of you know perhaps having had an infection that's made parts of our bodies swell up or ooze pus or debilitated us in some way and just this feeling of losing like you say control of bodily autonomy that it's it's that horrible reminder that we are not just these pure beings of of thought and reason that we are fundamentally just mobile meat and meat that can go wrong in really alarming ways you get that appendage kind of that that new appendage growing mm. you know we've all had that yeah <laughs> <laughs> All of us hope that that it develops into something as prehensile as yours, Paul. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I mean, everyone will want to keep keep a shirt on most of the time. But <laughs> I mean, that, that I've used. I mean, I've, I've I've literally used that in a scenario, an old scenario of mine, where there's this gardener bloke that they come across, and the, and the players are, you know, they've got to find this bloke because he's he knows something's going on, but unbeknownst to them he's already been changed you know he's already been affected by what was going on and so 
you're kind of describing this normal bloke and he's talking to them and, and, and then you describe how the front of their shirt starts to ruffle a bit and he kind of looks a bit <laughs> odd. And, and then this this kind of new new appendage starts to pope out from the from the front of the shirt kind of thing and <laughs> then reach to the neck of somebody. But in that in that way you kind of build on that kind of body horror yeah. as, it, as it, you know, built ramp it up in a way. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it occurs to me, as we talk about these elements of things that disgust us, that our civilization has very much kind of done everything it can to to fight against it. So like bodily waste mm. that we produce every day is just is just flushed away. And we, we, we might see our own, but we don't see anybody else's. You know, rotten food, it goes out in a bin and we have a big system to, to take that away for, you know, for good reason. Diseases and, and so on, they're there, but they're cared for in hospitals out of our sight. Even like meat and animals and dead animals, we don't see them. We all, all we see is like vacuumed bits of stuff that's a long way from like carcasses. It's a long way from that, just vacuum packed in a shop on a shelf. It's all nice and clean. We don't even get the blood on our fingers. Yeah. And, and the, way, the way we treat our dead. Yeah. 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 It's all very removed. Yeah. Distanced from us in a way that even like 100 years ago or, or less – people would have been much more in contact with those things every day. I don't know what that means, if that uh, makes any difference to our games, but I think it would have been a very different experience living you know, back then. I can remember my mum saying, like, uh, Dad, I think this just after the Second World War, and uh, he liked the cheese when it got, oh, what did he call them now? Jumpers. The jumpers, yeah, yeah, he liked them. <laughs> so they'd get the cheese in, and it got little like maggots in it. <laughs> um, and that's when it that was uh that was when it tasted best uh, apparently okay. i mean it's, well there's that sicilian cheese isn't there I can't yeah yeah, 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 yeah that is I mean, it's apparently Same illegal thing. to sell but is you know has got live maggots in it that keep the cheese nice and creamy and they mm. and the maggots taste creamy because they've been they're, all they've eaten is the cheese so they're you know they're mm. bloated and and specially succulent if you like that kind of thing mm. just to claw <laughs> it slightly back towards gaming mm. <laughs> And I'm just throwing these in kind of randomly. One is yeah. the kind of the Mego dressed in human flesh. You know, that's yeah. an interesting yeah. thing. And the other one is obviously things like the insects from Shigai, who are parasites. You know, they do sit in your head and perhaps affect you or, or, or make you do things you wouldn't normally do. Has anyone kind of used, used those kind of things, so you, you know, or something similar in there? Well, I was thinking about this earlier. I, I was thinking about the Migo in particular as sort of the uh, the prime example of body horror in Lovecraft. Because, yeah, as you say that, it's, you know, the, that whole idea of them wearing, you know, these waxen faces and hands, when that's some real uncanny valley shit. But, you know, the, the Migo brain cylinders, I mean, that is pure body horror, but having your brain taken out and you mm. are just this, this brain in a cylinder. And I was thinking if I wanted to really push that to an extreme, I'm sure someone must have done this in fiction or rpgs but you know what happens to those brain cylinders at the other end once they've been flown through space off to yogurt to the mining colonies there i can't imagine they just keep them sitting around in jars like that like you know some kind of uh, squidgy butterfly collection that <laughs> they put these people to work you know if they're going to put them to work they're going to have to create new bodies for them the, the other end something that is well suited to 
this lightless mining colony on this alien world. And so the idea of, after all this, having your brain implanted into something so completely alien and uh, there was, there there was a a science fiction novel like that. I remember reading as a kid by Keith Lama. I think it was a plague of demons, which was exactly that. You're aliens snatching people's minds and implanting them into these sort of worker bodies to, I think they'd be using the soldiers, but yeah, it was just this sort of really horrible idea, and I can really see the Migo doing that. I've used a similar premise actually at uh, people having their brains removed at the very beginning of a scenario, not necessarily realizing that's what's happened, but then finding themselves hopping from body to body in different situations and locations, being put through very weird experiments. I got this mm-hmm. uh, vision of um, on Yugoth of this Migo worker that's now got a human brain kind of like, you know, stamped onto their side of their head or, or whatever. And, and they can, they can listen. And it's like, they're using it like a podcast and they're listening, they're listening to all the humans memories and it's kind of a bit of entertainment for them. And then when they're done, they just, you know, rip it off and throw it in the pile, you know, decompose, you know, it's like a bio podcast. Oh, I like yeah. that. The man pod. I was going to say that I think this is a good case for using the x card or some something mm. like that in your games because i have known people that would faint if you just talked about blood too much you know people do have sometimes much more actual bodily reactions to just discussing some of these things that go yeah. beyond disgust so i think you know give people an out because you might if you really get into describing some of these gross things then you may actually well, as well as triggering all sorts of reactions, yeah, all sorts of negative reactions that people might just want you to stop. And along those lines, there was an article I read recently, which was something that had never really occurred to me, and I'm still really trying to process and understand, where it was a disability rights activist talking about how much they hated body horror as a concept because they felt that it was inherently ableist, that it was somehow people looking at the conditions of perhaps their life and the life of people like them as a source of of horror. I think that's a very sort of narrow and pejorative view of what body horror is. And as I've said, I think it speaks to much larger human themes. I mean, I think if the author was saying the horror was, you know, ending up in a wheelchair, that would be, I wouldn't go with that, Mm. you know, because, you know, that's plainly wrong. But I mean, what are they on about things? Are they on about normal disabilities in part of that? Well, I think what Mike was talking about there with, with bodily autonomy uh, that there is perhaps part of that, this fear of losing bodily autonomy, losing the use of your body, or seeing your body changed or malfunctioning in strange ways, that you know this isn't just an abstract form of horror to people who with certain disabilities that perhaps you know it, it, it does seem almost mocking to them. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't have an answer. It's just a perspective I, I hadn't even considered before. Mm. I think the thing to consider is that everyone has a perspective about something you know i'm sure that veterans who have lost limbs will have perspectives on you know combat in a tabletop rpg or a war game potentially they could they may or may not mm. uh you know in a, in a you know just drawing a similar analogy and i think you know everyone everyone comes at everything differently and sometimes you know uh, as we've always said know your players know your group and you know and, and anticipate or yeah. talk through if you think there may be an issue and if there is an issue arises then be prepared to kind of just 
either draw a veil and move on or you know have a quick chat and agree what was appropriate for that group at the time but as anything you know when you're dealing with horror as we all know not saying anything is sometimes the best thing when you draw you know you draw a uh, a curtain over it and leave the imagination to do the rest and say oh I'm not you've walked into this um mego experimentation chamber there are some people in here that have been experimented on but I'm not going to go into detail we're going to draw a, a a veil over that and uh, move on what do you want to do now leaving you now to picture how bad that looks and you know that your imagination is probably going to be worse than what I was going to describe in the first place <laughs> I think if I were doing that, I'd probably at least throw in a couple of not vivid descriptions, but perhaps just talk about, you know, every now and then some of the sounds that you can hear coming from there, these sort of, you know, wet noises and, and mewling sounds and stuff like that. And I think, you know, j- just plant a few subtle seeds like that rather than leave it entirely up to the players. Well, indeed, is it now time for us to draw a veil over this episode? Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you will also find links to all our social media presences. We have t-shirts and other merchandise available at our Redbubble store. And if you're enjoying the show, please consider backing us at patreon.com slash goodfriendsofjacksonelias. We offer a variety of interesting rewards to our backers, so please do check that out. Thank you for listening. Well, thank you very much for joining us again, Mike. If uh, people want to follow you on social media or any of your uh, online presences, where can they find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter as at Mike Mason, as in the original at Mike Mason on Twitter, because no numbers, <laughs> and Facebook. And, uh, you know, but obviously most of what I do comes out through Chaosium. So following, you know, Chaosium's Twitter and uh, signing up for our our newsletter via the chaosium.com website, you know, you will get to hear what I'm working on. And obviously check out the Chaosium YouTube channel where I'm running games on there for groups. If you want to see our particular scenario runs or see how I run games or deal with things, then, you know, by all means, come and have a watch. All right. Fantastic. Well, until next time, it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. Farewell from me. A toodle pip from me. Blasphemous tomes.com mm-hmm.